0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're speaking with Charlie Houston. He's the author of Already Dead, the Shotgun Rule. His latest book is Half the Blood of Brooklyn. Thank you for joining me, Charlie. My pleasure. Charlie, I, I want to talk just a little bit, Return to the Shotgun Rule, which was a superb and beautifully written novel. And as I thought about it more and more, it struck me as a, as a very American novel.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I mean, to the extent that it's, uh you know it takes place in america yeah uh, I mean, <laughs> um yeah there's there's it is definitely uh i don't think anybody would would mistake that story for you know being uh french or or asian or uh, <laughs> or russian in nature you know i mean i i think that there's certainly a, an aspect of teenagers being teenagers wherever they are and finding a certain amount of trouble but you know, the, the book has got a, a big load of, uh, of, of American pop culture in it, and, and I don't think that that kind of uh, classic suburban lifestyle is, uh, is something that we've exported with much success as we export you know, other aspects of our culture. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say on that one.
0: Well, it, it's a really fascinating look to me at, at American life. And it's, as you were talked about it, a, the suburban culture that's really peculiar to America, and you really nail it, not just with the brand names, but with the um, economic status of all your people. Now, one of the things I like about that novel is nobody's making a whole heck of a lot of money in it.
1: No, not even the drug dealers are making a whole heck of a lot of money in that book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And that's actually probably often the way it is.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, of course it is. It's you know the the you you think from, from you know looking at American movies and, and reading American crime novels that you know every drug dealer is uh, you know waiting in in cash and hoes and uh, and Bentleys, but you know the simple truth is that most 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 of the drug industry is about body feed, bottom feeding, and desperation. And you know, ultimately, uh, prison or violent death. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pathetic trade, and it's a it's a sad manifestation of <laughs> human weakness um, more than anything else, and greed, um, of course. But yeah, the overwhelming majority of people that are involved in the drug business are, you know, just like anybody else. They're just trying to get by. Um, I think everybody has <laughs> everybody has dreams and aspirations of getting rich, even drug dealers. But. The reality of it is that most people are just making a living, no matter what they're doing. Um, and it was very much, you know, I think we talked a little bit before about the um, economic class in the in the book, and it wasn't something that I was really consciously, you know, looking to write about. It was just a matter of, of to a certain extent, personal experience. And you know, this this wasn't autobiography by any means, but I was. You know, you still you write even when you're writing crime, and you have no, uh, you know, and your and your and your personal experience with crime is is you know marginal, is is penny annie stuff. You still write from personal experience to some extent, and it comes ends up on the page somehow. And in this case, it had a lot to do with where I grew up and the kind of people I grew up around and the kind of lifestyle we had. And you didn't, you know, I think I may, may have mentioned before to you, you didn't think about not having a lot of money it was enough money nobody was starving nobody was out on the streets you never thought about yourself as being in any particular income bracket it's just who you are which i think is just the story for most most people for most americans is you know you just make what you make and you may want to make more um but i don't think most people living in a lower middle class straightforward middle class uh situation think a lot about themselves as as uh not having a lot, or that's just existence. That's just life for most people, and it's no big deal. It,
0: life is indeed a big deal for Joe, for Joe Pitt, who yes. is uh, as in, as he's only sort of alive. Um, half the blood of Brooklyn. I want to congratulate you. You got through the entire first page without using the word fuck.
1: Did I? Yes. Oh, I, my goodness gracious. Have <laughs> you'll have to have your, so your editor...
0: <laughs> you, you need to change your. Uh, have your editor, you know, let him know what the important uh, uh, criteria for your books are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, somebody slipped up there in the process. Uh,
0: in this book, um, once again, Joe Pitt expands his roaming range to Brooklyn, and we get a visit to a very particular American institution, The Freak Show.
1: Ah, yes, The Mighty Freak Show. I'm not sure when it, I, at some point, at, at some point in the past, I had a, a, a passage in one of the books, neither, either Already Dead or, or the, the sequel, No Dominion, where Joe kind of rattles off the names of, uh, of other groups of, you know, clans of vampires uh, outside of Manhattan. And I had, well, I can't remember if I if that was when it first occurred to me the idea of of freak show vampires, or if it was later when I was actually making notes on this book. But um, when I lived in New York, I, I dearly, dearly loved Coney Island, and not even necessarily the the freak show and uh, aspect of it. I I loved the location. This is the second time I used it. I used it in um, in one of the Henry Thompson books, in A Dangerous Man. I love the first time I ever went to Coney Island, it was midwinter. Everything was shut down. It was the middle of the week. It was uh, gray and wet and forlorn and uh, just oddly romantic and beautiful in this strange, sad way. So I've always had had a soft spot for it. And when I knew Joe was going to, when I was going to send him to Brooklyn and have some things going on out there, Um, I needed a mission, and I started kind of poking around in the corners of my brain. And it seemed natural that uh, vampires uh, parading in in the guise of a freak show just seemed like a natural fit and and ample opportunity to to spill copious amounts of blood and other fluids across the page.
0: Also, I I have to say that in, in the opening of this book, you do an absolutely spectacular homage, I, I guess, or a nod to Monty Python. I can't, I, I say no more, but to in order, the ability, one of the things that I think you really have as a humorist, uh, you, you're really, really good. And, and the ability to take a nod to uh, a, a very historic uh, a comic bit and still make the people laugh, not at the old comic book, but at yours, is is really spectacular.
1: You know what, Rick? I, You know what? I'm going to confess. I have no idea what scene you're talking about. Did I steal from Monty Python and not be aware of it?
0: Uh, uh, you didn't know? Well, there's a... a no, tell uh, oh. me. I've done <coughs> well, it before.
1: <laughs> well, I've stolen without realizing I was stealing.
0: Well, there's a scene where at, at the very open... In, in the first couple... We're not giving away too much. In the first no, 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 three no, pages no. of the book... Um, Joe Pitt is uh, sets a, a little bit of a a, a trap for somebody, yeah. And then he it chops off, chops it, it oh. off both <laughs> of the character's arms. And all I could think of was the it's Black only Knight. Yet yeah, only a flesh wound. And <laughs>
1: yeah, in this it's case, it's creepy.
0: true.
1: <laughs> it's not. You know what? It's not. It's it's. Uh, you're right. It's it's straight out of the Holy Grail, and. Uh, You know, it's not the first time I've done something like that. The the first time where I really, it really hit me was with A Dangerous Man. And I had written this scene uh, between Joe and another character that takes place on the Wonder Wheel at Coney Island. So they're riding the the Ferris wheel and they're having this conversation. And I kind of, you know, tell tell it from from Henry's point of view as he's watching the ground, you know, kind of drop below them. And later, after I'd finished the book and I was going through the, the manuscript and doing some edits and stuff, and I looked at that scene and I was like, you yeah, know, that's a real nice scene. I'm, I'm very happy with that scene. And I suddenly had this lightning strike and realized that it's, uh, it's from the third man. It's, <laughs> it's Grand Green. It's the scene between Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles on the, on the Ferris wheel. Uh, when they first, when uh, when they when they when they re, when they meet up for the first time, and the when you actually see them together, those two characters together for the first time in the movie, and uh, and it was one of those go moments. And at first, I thought, you know, it's it's so obvious. This is such, you know, it's nothing that happens in the scene uh, mirrors exactly what happens in the book in terms of plot or anything. But it's such an iconic. You know, film scene. Uh, I thought it, it's going to be. I'm going to so be put through the ringer for this. But to date, nobody who has has told me that they've that they've caught it. And it made me uh, much less self-conscious about theft uh, in the books, and and much more willing when I when I see something, uh, just a, a snippet, a visual, uh, or a turn of phrase, or even a, a writerly trick. If there's something that a writer does that um, particular way of uh, formatting on the page or a way to express action, Um, it's made me much less self-conscious about saying, wow, that works. That's a great tool. I'm going to incorporate that tool into into what I do. Um, I didn't realize I'd done it with Monty Python as well, but uh, as, as always, when you're stealing, steal from the best whenever possible.
0: And do so unconsciously so that it comes off very clean, (laughs) (laughs) like this did.
1: You know, I'm claiming that it was unconscious, but there's no telling what was actually going
0: on. You know, it interests me. uh, There was something, uh, a phrase you mentioned, formatting on the page. Uh, This isn't something that I think as readers we think that writers think about, but as readers we really look at it and it's it's often the dividing line between whether we'll pick up a book and read it or put it down or pick up a book and buy it or put it down and, and you well, were-
1: with with my stuff it was from from day one I think it was something that was fairly visible on the page because really through a random set of not random but through an odd set of circumstances I, I format my dialogue without quotation marks. And, it, and it, the the intentional part of that was that I, this was one of my earliest cases of robbery, was that I when I was writing that book, I really liked the way Cormac McCarthy formats his dialogue. So that it just rolls straight down the page. But he also will, you know, his his dialogue and his prose will often just mash directly together so that it can be, you know, it, it can be a, a genuine piece of work to to break it up and, and you lose track of who's saying what and where which with Cormac McCarthy is a perfectly rewarding process to go through but I'm not Cormac McCarthy so I wanted there to be I wanted the dialogue to spill but I wanted there to be an indication that that there was actual dialogue taking place that couldn't be missed so that's why I used the dash instead of the, um, the quotation marks the other aspect was that I'm just a, 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 I'm better now but I was a miserable miserable typist and a lazy slow typist and uh, you know, using quotation marks just took longer. And it was more, it was more keystrokes. I assumed when someone actually made an offer to um, to boycott stealing, I assumed one of the first things they'd say was, "Let's get rid of these fucking dashes and put in some quotation marks." And uh, as it turned out, it wasn't it wasn't a concern, and now it's just second nature. And then as the books have gone along, I found myself doing more and more. You know, pair, one sentence long paragraphs, one word long paragraphs. Um, I, you know, really isolating words on the page, um, very consciously using sentence fragments. Um, and it, at first, I felt a little self-conscious about it when I'd find myself doing it too much, and I would, I would say, oh, it's a little precious and uh, and pretentious both at the same time, which is an unattractive combination. But. Um, but it's just it's just the way I want to tell stories. So I've, I've, and I and I don't want to fight what seems to come naturally because I, I think that that's a losing battle. So now I, I embrace it more. There are times when I, I I'll find in the editing process where I've overindulged and I, and I and I don't think that a page can support, uh, you know, ten ten one word uh <laughs> paragraphs, uh, and you know, you if you're using them to add to add weight to a specific. Thought or action or phrase, then uh, the more you do it, the less the less weight it's going to impart. I just read um, a book that that will be coming out very very soon, either this month or next next month in the in the states. A book called Sharp Teeth, and the writer's name is his first name is Toby, and his second name is escaping me right now, which is a shame. Sharp Teeth is this absolutely spectacularly wonderful. Uh, Neo noir about uh, packs of werewolves in Los Angeles, and uh, it's it's uh, written in it's written in verse. It's written in in free verse.
0: In free verse. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's written, it's basically, <laughs> it's
1: written it's written in the style of an epic poem, you know, and uh, so the format is is a huge part of it because there's, there's it's it's a lovely book. It's it's beautifully written. It sounds like such a ridiculous combination of, of genre and high mindedness, but it works so beautifully. And part of what works about it is the sincerity with which the story is told. There's there's not there's humor in it, but there's no there's no camp to it whatsoever. Um, I'm just in, I'm in love with this book, and it's killing me. I can't remember the writer's last name, um, but but the formatting in that book is such a huge part of it the way he will isolate a word or the way he'll isolate uh, the end of a the uh, the way he'll isolate a, a short stanza on a single page it's it's really consciously done and really done to, to great effectiveness
0: well that's very interesting one of the things that that strikes me that in your work at least that i think uh, Counteracts uh, some of the the potential preciousness and pretentiousness of the dash setup and, and the one line sentences is the fact that what's happening within all of this is so incredibly gritty and so incredibly over the top and and just hysterical, but also you know there's a, there's no small amount of emotion in it.
1: Uh. I hope so. You know, I the the uh, the humor I always, you know, I say that the humor in these things is, is even in the Joe Pitt books which which are over the top. Um, but way over the top. <laughs> uh, the humor is really incidental. It's very very rare that I write a I write a, a scene or have a character say something where I'm I'm trying to make it funny where I'm to go, this whole, this whole, you know, roll them in the aisles or something like that. It's usually just the, the situations and the characters. And when I sometimes when I do try to do that, I feel like it's, you know, I feel like it's too much, and I'm forcing it, and I'm never comfortable with it. Uh, that's not true. I don't want to say never comfortable with it because I would get rid of it if that, if that was the case. But there's times when I feel like I'm, I'm trying too hard to be funny, and that's usually when it falls flat. Um, the the emotion is usually the stuff that I'm locked into, and I'm I'm almost never alienated from any of these characters, whether they're you know the 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 ones that pass for nice guys in in Joe's world and the the abundance of assholes. Um, so I'm I'm always coming at, at it from a viewpoint where I. <laughs> um, the, the stuff is terribly overwrought but and and really hyper melodramatic but it, it it definitely keys some kind of feeling in me when I'm writing it uh something something that there's 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 genuine emotion in the effort to put it on the page um, particularly you know when with with the Joe may kill in a in a somewhat offhand manner but I, there's there's usually something in there that's meant to gives some indication of the weight that, that goes along with each death. And um, it doesn't always come across with all the blood gushing and everything, but it's there for me. And uh, and I know that there are some some readers that, that pick it up, and I think that if some of the emotion comes across and some of the feeling comes across through it, that's probably where a lot of it is is kind of stitched into the story.
0: Well, I think that's probably, for me, why the humor works, because there's a certain amount of poignance to all of these situations and it kind of is counterbalanced by some of the humor and it's interesting that you say you don't intentionally write humor because I think that these are among the funniest books that that yeah I, I've read, I've always looked forward to these to, to your books just <clears throat> because they're so funny
1: Yeah it's, you know, it's that my, we have a little uh, cartoon on the uh, uh, on the, the refrigerator that kills both my wife and I, and it's a, uh, it's a scene at a bar, and it's a, you know, it's a little dive bar, and there's a clown, and there's, a, there's another guy drinking, and the clown is saying, I tell the truth, and sometimes it's funny. And for some reason, that, that cartoon just absolutely just, just slays my wife and I, and it also seems to speak very much to the heart of, uh, of both of us, the, the, way that, the way that we are both funny in life and uh, to me, <laughs> it also speaks volumes about you know about the world as a whole. And I think there's just something about that. that uh, it, it delights me that people think that uh, that the pit books are uh, are funny, and it delights me that um, that people uh, find the humor in uh, in the books. And it delights me that I'm, you know, I'm not trying to write funny, that funny just seems to, you know, I tell the truth and sometimes it's funny is the is the way I look at it, and I'm pretty happy with that scenario.
0: These books, of course, to me at least, seem tailor-made for movies, and, and I understand there has been some interest. What What's going on with uh, you and the movies? Uh,
1: the only active, well, nothing's active right now because they've got a big writer's strike out here in Hollywood. Um but the only thing that's really on, that, that's uh, at any point in development right now is already dead, the first Joe Pitt book. That, there's an option out on that to a company called, um, called I can't remember if they're Phoenix Films or Phoenix Pictures. And they're working in association with, um, uh, with a production company owned by Michael DeLuca, and they actually have have gotten to the point where they had a uh, have have a screenplay in hand. They hired uh, a fine screen uh, screenwriter to uh, to write it. And um, who now uh, you know I'll, I'll be perfectly yeah, no actually no it's been announced in the press so it's okay his name is Scott Rosenberg and the two films the two screenplays he became known for initially were Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead and Beautiful Girls which are two completely different movies, and not necessarily great movies, but really good screenplays. And then over the years, his stock and trade has become big-budget action pictures. So he does a lot of work for um, a lot of the Bruckheimer, you know, big blow-everything-up type stuff. Um and they they, uh, they wrote a screenplay and he wrote a screenplay and they actually um, called me up and asked me if I wanted to read it and I initially thought that I would not want to but I, re- I, I decided that I did want to and he did a really good job you know their approach to their approach to already dead was that they wanted it to be be the, the launch pad for a big budget franchise so that was. That was how they went at it, which means they streamlined the cast and they made some of the relationships a little more simple. They, they really pulled the love story between Joe and Evie to the forefront, which I which I love because that's always been, to me, the absolute backbone of the whole series. And, uh, and they, they flashed some things up. Some of the things are, are not choices that I ever would have made, but I just... for what what they're trying to get done that he did a great job. There's some wonderful, wonderful bits of humor that he put into it. And I was also really flattered because he kept a a whole lot of my dialogue in there. So that was really cool. So they're, they're they're frozen because they can't do anything. They can't do any work on the script during the strike. So they're not doing anything at the moment. And these things are always enormous long shot. even when they get as far as having a uh getting a screenplay written you're still you know you're still a very 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 far 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 universe away from uh, actually getting a movie made
0: and i'm just wondering out there in la how is the writer strike affecting you you're a writer <laughs>
1: I'm a writer, yeah, but I don't. This is this is not my business. It's affecting me on a personal level because I have a lot of friends that uh, that that write for film and TV. I have even more friends who are actors or um, in some other way associated with the business. So I've got we've got any number of of friends who are actors who uh, are there whether they're um, series regulars on TV so their shows have been shut down now and they're not working or they're uh, they're they're hard-working grinded out actors like as <laughs> as with drug dealing most actors are hard-working grinded out uh, grinded out types and there's just nothing casting so there's no work for them uh, I've got a good friend who's uh, whose husband does post-production work on a sitcom and um, he's Frozen out of work because of the strike, and they've got you know two kids at home, and uh, it's tough. It's tough for those people because it's not it's not their battle being fought, and they're they're stuck on the sidelines, and it's hard for them to um, kind of you know know where their sympathies should be. I'm being both a writer and uh, and a having come from a union family. For me, it's a no-brainer. I'm you know I'm I'm completely behind the strike. Uh, but it's tough. It's tough on, it's tough on everybody here. This 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 town runs. It's a one. It's a one. In, it's a two-industry town. It's the you know film and TV, and it's uh and it's real estate. So it's it's uh, tough times out here for a lot of people that we know. But myself, it's a good time to be a novelist and a good time to be writing comic books because we're not really touched by it economically.
0: Well, tell me about your comic books.
1: Uh, there's not a whole lot to tell right now. I, uh, my solo run on Moon Knight came to an end. I stepped out of the book, and, uh, a TV writer named Michael Benson, who's, uh, uh, has been in the business for many years, and then the last few years was a writer-producer on entourage, uh, he took over writing, uh, writing Moon, Moon Knight, and, uh, I had been answering some questions and uh, talking to he and uh, the editor, Axel Alonso, about, uh, about where they were going to go with the story. And it evolved into a situation where, um, where I decided to, I, I, well, I, I asked if they would be interested in having me stick around as a co-plotter and work with Michael on the book for a little while, which uh, he generously agreed to. And it turned out to be a lot of fun. It was my first experience, uh, you know, really collaborating on on, uh, on a writing project. Um, so it's very much uh, Mike's title now, and he's the lead writer on it. But the process that we went through with the first six issues that he wrote was that he and I would get together and uh, and talk for a few hours, and then uh, plot things out. And he'd send me his first draft of the of a script, and then I'd go through that and give him line notes, and hand it back to him, and then. He was at liberty to—it's his title—so was, he was at liberty to use line notes or not use line notes, and that was basically it. So it was a nice—it uh, was a nice way to stay involved with the story and not uh, not have the day-to-day burden of working under a working under a deadline. But now the first issue that he, that he wrote that I was associated with is uh, is in stores right now, um, Moon Knight 14, and. Uh, There'll be five more, I think, that he and I did together, and then he'll be writing it on his own after that. And then I've got some side projects with Marvel. I wrote an issue of Wolverine that'll come out sometime later this year, and I'm working on a a science fiction uh, miniseries for them that that I'm not allowed to talk about because they're very hush-hush over at Marvel Comics.
0: Well, that's really a fascinating look into the comics writing business. We've, yeah. been, we've been speaking with Charlie Houston. His new book is Half the Blood of Brooklyn. Thank you for joining me, Charlie.
1: It's always a pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me.